In the long, long ago, it was when God was creating the heavens and the earth that he spake all things into existence. And one of those things was man. And it was there in the garden that God put in man's place, in his possession, in his authority, the ability to have dominion over the creatures. It was also there in the garden that God planted every tree that was pleasing to the sight and good for food, including the tree of life and the, knowledge of, uh, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And yet, while Adam and Eve, unbeknownst to them, while they were enjoying uh, the, the blessings that were in the garden, Satan was lurking with the evil intent of murdering the human race. Good morning. Uh, each and every Lord's Day, we are blessed to have the privilege to gather together as saints to worship our God, who is the Redeemer, who has redeemed us from the bondage of sin. Uh, James 1, as Brother Adam had just read for us, is actually teaching us in, in a sense that with every sin, when man finds himself in sin, it's when his lust has been conceived. Uh, Hebrews 4, verse 7, James 4, verse 17 says that when a man knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. And so James, in the broad spectrum, is setting up that in the foreground of every sin is temptation. And that's what our topic of discussion will be about this morning. It will be about temptation. Uh, it comes by request of one of our elders who has said that we're all faced uh, with temptation. And temptation is the carrying us of a way where we're enticed by our lusts. And when those lusts are conceived, it gives birth to sin. So I'm thankful for each one who has gathered together. Uh, Brother Ted, your confidence is not contagious. Because when you said that, I lost a lot of confidence in myself. Uh, but if you have a question during this sermon, uh, feel free to ask. Even if it's just raising your hand, uh, we'll address it. Let the questions of your heart be known. Because on the day of Pentecost, when Peter was in the middle of his sermon, they actually shouted out and said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And that was the greatest question they could have asked. So if you have a question, uh, feel free to go ahead and ask. It's not going to hurt my feelings any. Uh, this is not my opportunity to give an ecclesiastical monologue. Um, but at the same time, uh, if, if that's uncomfortable for you, I'll also give a period of time before I extend the invitation for any other questions that you may have. So to begin, let's first understand what the definition of temptation is. Vine's Expository Dictionary <clears throat> says that temptation comes from the root word parezo. And parezo simply means to tempt. Yet, in its specific application, it's always going to mean to try, to attempt, to test, to prove. Um, Vine's also goes on to say that it can be used in both a good sense and in a bad sense. For good, Hebrews 4.15 says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things just as we, yet without sin. Jesus was tempted for good in the sense that he endured temptation. And so when you read tempted, it can be uh, actually a good thing when you endure it, but it can also be a bad thing. Uh, however, parezo can mean, uh, in Galatians 6, 1, Galatians 6.1, we actually find where uh, Paul says, Brethren, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. So what he's trying to say here is, don't act as your, the, your judge of your brother, but rather be one with him in liability to sin, finding yourself 
the possibility of finding yourself in a similar circumstance. But thanks to Jesus, temptation is not always bad. For he can sympathize with us in our weaknesses. For Hebrews 2.18 says he suffered through temptation, yet was not drawn away to sin. After all, who can be haughty when it comes to sin and temptation? Only Christ is the only one who can say that he endured temptation at all times. Every time temptation came to him, Christ can say that he could be haughty if he chose to. But Christ wasn't haughty at all. Hebrews 2.18 says quite the contrary. He comes to the aid of those who are tempted. He comes to the aid of those who are tempted. Isn't that beautiful? That Christ, not boasting of being without sin, but rather he comes to sympathize with you in your temptation to sin. James captures, from our lesson text that Brother Adam read, James captures this same thought. When he says that, let no one say when he is tempted that I am being tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. God's not tempting anyone. Why? Because he's coming to the aid of those who are tempted. To really understand temptation, we must first understand what temptation is really a test of. Um, when the tempter comes to you tempting you to sin, what is, what is he trying to accomplish? What is his ultimate goal? The parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25 is teaching us that all men are servants to the masters because all men was created to be a servant of God and all men are servants to the master. Uh, when Jesus came to live as a man, he actually, Philippians 2.6 says that he counted not his equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, because that's what a man is to God. He is a servant. Jesus, however, is the only one from the parable of talents who can be called the good and faithful servant, right? The rest of us are but wicked and slothful servants. We're wicked and slothful slaves, who, when tempted with sin, failed to be faithful to God. And isn't that what temptation really is? Isn't that what temptation really boils down to, is will you be faithful to God? James 1, verse 2. If you turn to your Bibles there, you should, might already be open to them. James 1, verse 2. says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials or temptations, as trials can also... Uh, be rendered. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various temptation or trials, knowing that the testing of your faith, the testing of your faith produces endurance. When you encounter temptation, it's the testing of your faith. Will you be faithful to God? First uh, Peter 1 verse 6 says, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials or temptations that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold which is perishable even though tested by fire may be found and result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Will you be faithful to God even though distressed with temptations when Satan is trying to pull you away from God will you be faithful to God? And finally... Now turn to 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 5. 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 5. Paul is actually worried about the church at Thessalonica uh, because of the suffering that they've been encountering in verse 3. And then in verse 5 he says, For this reason, 
When I could endure it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I sent to find out about your faith. Why? For fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor should be in vain. Because this is what the tempter is trying to do. The tempter is trying to get you to renounce your faithfulness to God in every temptation. And so the tempter puts before you a test. And when you come across that crossroad of whether or not you will choose sin or whether or not you'll choose to be faithful to God, you're given the choice. Why? Because God has put it within man to have the freedom to exercise choice. God created man to be a free moral agent. And this is because God wants our pure love, right? He wants us to be able to dedicate ourselves solely to him out of pure love, but pure love can only be exhibited when put with a test, when put with a choice, the choice to give pure love or to not give pure love. That's the only way it can be uh, exhibited. And so temptation is absolutely for ne necessary. It is absolutely needful for man, which is why Vine said that temptation can also be used in a good sense because it will prove your faith. Um, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew chapter 26, uh, you don't have to turn in your Bibles, but uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was telling the apostles who were there with him, uh, he said, keep, watch, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. And when, when Jesus had said this, he had, Judas actually had already uh, succumbed to his temptation to betray Jesus, right? He had already accepted that as his temptation. But yet, Peter was also warned that before the cock crowed, you will deny me three times. And so when the temptation was complete, when all the, the temptation of both Judas and Peter was complete, neither one of them remained faithful to God. For Judas did what? He felt remorse. All the naysayers that, who say that, no, it doesn't make sense that God could make man a free moral agent where he can make the choice on his own, yet he knows the choice that man will make. So how do we know that God didn't make the choice for us? And so those men who question that should look deeply into the response of both Judas and Peter. For Judas, after recognizing that Jesus had been condemned, although not put to the cross yet, but his crucifixion was at hand, Judas, in Matthew 27, verses 3 through 5, felt remorse. He threw back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, and he went out and hanged himself. And Peter, in Matthew chapter 26, verse 75, after remembering the things that Jesus had said, that he would deny the Christ three times before the cock crowed, when he remembered those things, he went out and wept bitterly. Now what man, if, if his actions did not represent his own decision, what man would go out and hang himself, number one? And number two, what man would go out and weep bitterly? No, we see for sure that both Judas and Peter and all men have the free moral agency to make their own choice, whether or not they will be drawn to sin or whether they would choose to obey. No other created thing has this propensity, do they? The sun rises every evening, and, or rises every morning, and sets every evening because it has no choice but to obey God. Gravity pulls at a constant 9.8 meters per second because it has no choice but to obey God. But man was given a choice. Now we open this lesson in the long, long ago when God was creating the heavens and the earth uh, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, 
and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God gave man authority, dominion, rule, the ability to control the animals and all the creatures. This is also reiterated in verse 28. Now, unfortunately, man cannot do this today, can he? Not, not, definitely not in the sense that Adam and Eve could. For, you know, we go fishing all day long and we come home with barely a day's meal. Or consider the sport of bull riding. And quite honestly, if we had the dominion over the cattle and over the wild beast, bull riding, that sport would not be near as exciting for you or for me. But as it is, man does not have dominion over the animals like he once did. But who did? Who did exercise his dominion over the animals? It definitely wasn't Adam and Eve, right? Because when the tempter came to Adam and Eve in the form of a serpent, man in the garden should have been using his authority over the creature to say no. Uh, Romans chapter 1. Turn to Romans chapter 1 in your Bible, please. In Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 20, it says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood that through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory for the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over to their lusts of their heart to impurity, that their bodies might be dishonored among them. Now listen closely. Verse 25 of Romans chapter 1. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Adam and Eve chose to worship the creature rather than the creator. And in that temptation, that cunning temptation, you have to admit, Satan was on his best game that day, wasn't he? Because he, he developed a plan that would not only get man to eat of the forbidden tree and cause him to sin, and thereby hoping to murder the entire human race because God had promised him in the day of Newton to surely die. That was Satan's hope that he could wipe man off the earth, the pinnacle of God's creation, with one fatal swoop. Yet... He also found, figured out a way to get them to not only, well, to violate their powers that they had over the creatures. But Jesus is the only one who has ever lived who faithfully exercised his dominion over the creatures, right? If you remember in Mark chapter 1, verse 13, after Jesus had, uh, after Jesus had been tempted in the wilderness, or after he'd been baptized as his in his office as high priest, he then was uh, sent to the wilderness where he would be, as Mark said, he was tempted by Satan and he was with the wild beasts. Now, Jesus, you have to think about his situation here. Number one, he's alone as far as without a companion. He is uh, starving from his fasting to God. Number three, he's with the wild beast who is always looking for a helpless meal such as a man starving and all alone. And number four, 
He's in the presence of Satan. We have a concoction here of fear. Yet, in his fear, in this situation of fear, without fear, Jesus continued to exercise his dominion. And the wild beast did not harm him. Let's consider later uh, in Jesus' life where uh, Jesus had told Peter, he said, go down to the Sea of Tiberias. Go down to the sea, cast out a hook. And the first fish that comes up to you, open up its mouth and look inside. And what would be there? A, sh a shekel, a coin. Jesus exercised dominion over the fishes. After his resurrection in John 21, Jesus appeared. Uh, I, this one was actually where he appeared on the Sea of Tiberias because the, uh, some of his apostles were out fishing. And they had had no luck catching any fish. They were fishing about like we do. And Jesus said, cast your nets on the other side. And when they did, when they hauled it in, there was so much fish, so the great number of fish that they couldn't even get it on board. Jesus exercised dominion over the fishes. Why could he do this? Why was Jesus able to do this? You could argue that it was because he had the miraculous. And in some cases, that's probably true. But Jesus was also the new Adam. He was the new Adam. Meaning, unlike the old Adam, Jesus, when he came to this earth, was going to be given everything just as the first Adam had had. He was going to be given it all back to him where he could make a proof that he was God, that he would be faithful to God at all times. And so, unlike the new Adam, Jesus would be faithful to God under every temptation. He would never be subject to the creature, and he would never give his authority over to Satan. Because isn't that what Jesus did? When man, handed, when man handed over his dominion to the creature, made himself subject to the creature, what happened? Satan became the ruler of this world. Luke 4, verse 6. Luke 4, verse 6. Luke 4 is also giving us the account of the temptation of Jesus. And when Satan takes Jesus up uh, to show him the kingdoms of the earth, and he says that he, if Jesus would fall down and worship him, he, he'd give it all to him. Well, notice what he says in verse 6. He said, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed to me. Who handed it to him? It was man's from the beginning, right? God had given it to man to have dominion over the earth and over every creeping thing that is on the earth. But when man succumbed to the creature rather than the creator, he handed it all over to Satan. And Paul in 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says that Satan is the god of this world. Now, actually, that should be translated uh, god of this age because it uses the Greek word aeon. Uh, world is always cosmos. But Satan was also the god of this world, John 12.31. When uh, Jesus says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. What he's saying there is the verse before was talking about the ruler of the world and everyone being in it. And he's going to draw all men out of the ruler of this world, which is Satan, when he casts Satan out, uh, Revelations 20, verse 10. So, God, through the form of Jesus, exercised proper dominion to show man that we should put God as our leading uh, force, meaning he should, we should be faithful to him and subject to him because that's what a servant is to God. Okay, the second point we need to highlight from Genesis is that God put the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the garden. He put the tree in the garden because just like man was to exercise dominion over the creature and having, being able to exercise that 
that uh, dominion would be able to show them whether or not they would be faithful to God in that performance. Now, the tree was put in the garden, uh, the tree of knowledge of good and evil was put in the garden because man was to exercise dominion over himself. Refusing to exercise dominion over himself would mean that he would eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, right? So that was the second way that man tempted, uh, say, that what, the second way that the tempter tempted man. First way was to get him to, to overthrow his uh, rule over the creatures. The second way was to get him to eat of the knowledge of tree and evil, thus not exercising dominion over himself. Now, the third thing is why was Satan in the garden? If man was given this free exercise of choice, God had to make it to where man would have a choice of whether to be faithful to God or to be faithful to sin, to give away to sin, right? And so God himself causes all things to work together for good, Romans 8. And uh, James chapter 1 said that God cannot tempt anyone. So God had to put a tempter, one who would work for evil, in the garden to allow man to make the choice. Uh, Vines describes the tempter as literally uh, coming from the same parezo to tempt, except preceded by the article. So it literally becomes the one tempting. It is used as a noun describing the devil in Matthew 4, 3, and 1 Thessalonians 3, 5. Now in Matthew chapter 4, 3 was where Jesus was being tempted in Matthew's account. And it was when uh, the tempter had came to him. And he was tempting him in all three ways. Well, after the temptation was complete, what did Jesus say? He said, be gone, Satan, right? We have the identity of the tempter. The tempter is always Satan. And then from the passage in 1 Thessalonians 3, 5 that we looked at earlier, when Paul was worried about the church and their faith uh, because they were being tempted by Satan, he said, for fear, this is why he was worried about their faith, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you. So what Paul is trying to tell us here is that Satan is to be feared, right? He is not only real, but he is to be feared. First um, Peter 5, verse 8, says that Satan is our adversary. He prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He, uh, Satan is also, in Revelation 20, verse 2, he is identified as the serpent of old. And in Matthew 13, 38, he's uh, described as the evil one. And just one verse later, he's described as the enemy. So we have the adversary, the enemy of humanity. We have the serpent of old, uh, the evil one. Satan is to be feared. But God has not left us alone, right? Hebrews 2.18 says he comes to the aid of those who are tempted. When Satan attempts to tear your faith asunder, God has promised a way of escape. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. Turn in your Bibles with us there, if you would, please. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. It says, No temptation has overtaken you, such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide a way of escape also, that you may be able to endure it. Now when Paul says God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, it means that Satan is bound. He's limited in some capacity. Every, all the evil that the devil can muster up is limited, controlled, and overruled by the Almighty, right? And so, in the book of Job, we actually see this. Where God gave permission to Satan, he said, Behold, all that Job has is in your power. Just don't harm his life. Don't kill him. 
And so Satan was bound by what God had given him. And so God says, uh, God is faithful who will allow you to be tempted, be, not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation provide a way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. Now Jesus was tempted in every way just as we, uh, yet he was without sin. Uh, and he actually, because the temptation of Jesus is recorded, we know exactly how to handle temptation, how to escape from temptation. When Jesus was in being tempted by the devil, what did he say? Every time he said, it is written. Now, 1 John 2.16 tells us that Jesus would be tempted, uh, one, by the lust of the flesh, two, by the lust of the eyes, and, the boastful, and three, the boastful pride of life. That's the form in which all temptations come, is in one of those three avenues. And Jesus was tempted in all those ways. Now, because of time, we're not going to go through the temptation of Jesus uh, like I would like to. But what we can know is how Jesus found the way of escape. Now, number one, with the first temptation, according to Luke's account, was turning the stones to bread, right? Now, Eddie, I can't turn stones to bread. Some people can barely turn a loaf of dough to bread. But Jesus was able to, right? Because he was God, and he had that power. But when Jesus became a man, Philippians 2, 6, when he humbled himself, not counting his equality with God a thing to be grasped, but lowered himself to be a bondservant, he was no longer allowed to use his power as deity to benefit himself. That there was no old, old law about turning stones to bread. That was not a sin. But was, what was a sin? For Jesus to override his humanity by his deity. And so that's, Satan is tricky. And we must always uh, be careful not to let Satan deceive us into what is sin and what is not. Because it may appear that it won't be sin, but it very well may be. Now, every time that Jesus encountered temptation, he said, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. It is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. God provides us a way of escape, and it's in the scriptures. If we can say every time that Satan comes to us to test us of our faithfulness to God, if we will rely on our faith to God, if we will rely on the scriptures, then he'll be faithful to give us a way of escape, and we'll be able to endure all temptation. So in conclusion, uh, what we've hopefully learned today is, number one, that a temptation is a choice of whether or not you'll be faithful to God or whether you'll draw away, be drawn away to sin. We know that the temptation does not come from God because he himself cannot tempt anyone, but rather he's coming to the aid of those who are tempted. And number two, in the, early on in the garden, God had given man dominion over the creatures. Man failed, and he put himself subject to the creature, and he gave away his dominion to Satan. And since then, Satan's been the ruler of the world. Number two is God put the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the garden so that man would have a choice of whether or not he would serve God or whether he would serve self and wanton pleasure, not exercising dominion over self. And lastly, God put Satan in the garden so that man could have a choice of whether or not he would serve God. And since God cannot tempt anyone with evil because all things that are good come from him, he had to have a tempter. Do you have any questions? Any questions that you would like to hear an answer to? If I can't answer it, Brother Eddie can.
Okay. We're being bashful. If you would, uh, be turning your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3. Now, we've, we've gone over several of the names that Satan is called in this life. Uh, Satan's called the adversary, the enemy, uh, the evil one, the, in, um, the serpent of old, the tempter. But Satan also has another name. And uh, Revelation chapter 10, I'm going to read this for you while you're in uh, Zechariah. Revelation chapter, chapter 12 verse 10 says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser... The accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. Who accuses them night and day uh, before God? Now, Satan is called the accuser. And he's waiting to accuse you of every iniquity that stands between you and God because he doesn't want you to have faith in God. And he doesn't want, God, uh, he doesn't want you allowed to be turned over to God and to be called up uh, as a child of God. Now, Zechariah chapter 3, <clears throat> beginning in verse 1. Says, then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. Now, as we discussed in our class earlier today, the high priest represented every man, right? When that, uh, that sheep, that lamb was brought in, the high priest would put his hands upon its head, and every member of the church, every sinner, would call about and confess his sins, and it would be placed upon that lamb. The high priest would then lead it into the most holy place where it would be offered for the sins of the people. The high priest represented every man. And Joshua was the high priest. And he was standing before the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord, as uh, my teenage class uh, was learning before Bible Bowl, the angel of the Lord, and the majority of the time, and I'm not going to say definitively every time, but I think I could prove it that it was just about every time, the angel of the Lord is always going to be who we know as the second member of the Godhead, who is Jesus Christ. And, and pay attention to that as we continue reading. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Because that's what Revelation said Satan's going to do, right? He's the accuser. He's ready to accuse you of every iniquity that stands between you and God so that you cannot be called into God's kingdom. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. And he spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. And he said to him, See, I have taken your iniquity away and from, from you and will clothe you with festal robes. Who took the iniquity away? See, I have taken your iniquity away. Who's speaking? Who takes our iniquity away? It's Jesus. Jesus is the one, and Jesus is present in Zechariah chapter 3. He says, See, I have taken your iniquity away, and I will clothe you with festal robes. Take off your filthy garments of sin, of which you're deserving punishment because you're the one who got the, the garments dirty, but I'll make you righteous, and I'll put on a festal robe. Then he said, Let him put on a clean turban on his head. And so they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by, and the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of my host, If you will walk in my ways, and if you will perform my service, then you will also govern my house and have charge over my courts, and I will grant you free access among these who are standing here. Jesus is the one speaking because it's his church and his kingdom, right? 
And he's the one who is allowing you access in because he died on the cross for your sins. Have you been faithful through your temptations to God? If not, and none of us have, as we said earlier, we're all but wicked and slothful servants. But God has made a way through Jesus Christ that we can be among the good and the faithful slave, right? Because Jesus died on the cross for our sins, being our high priest and representing every man who stands before God if clothed with the garment of Christ, Galatians 3.27. If you've not put Christ on in baptism, then you haven't washed away your sins. Acts 2.38, and then in Acts 22, verse 16, Paul, Paul, why delay? Arise and be baptized, washing away your sins. If you're an erring Christian and temptation has gotten the best of you, you've been drawn over by your own lust and being tempted, having not dominion over your own self, and your lusts have given birth to sin, then why don't you come and renew your soul to God while we stand and while we sing?